If you have a Bible with you, open it to Psalm 51. As we spoke of last week, we often engage in prayer for other people. We intercede for them. We ask for God's help for them. And not just for good things, not not just that they might have wealth and shelter, not just for their health or their comfort or their strength, but for ultimate things, that they might have salvation before the Lord. The question comes that, what happens after that? What, what is supposed to happen when we pray that God works in the hearts of people? What are we praying that they might do? After all, the elect don't just wake up one day in heaven and say, Hi, who are you? Well, hi, I'm Jesus. They will know who the Lord is. They cannot get there without calling upon his name. So there must be some sort of response from them. But we also must realize that in humility, even those of us who have been saved, that such a deplorable state of being sinners is not just found in the world, but it's in all of us. All of us are sinful before God. All of us are called to repentance. Paul had said that, and such were some of you after he listed sins. And some of them were found in those sins, but all of us are condemned as sinners. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Not even Paul himself, as purely as he could keep the law, was justified by the works that he did. We are all sinful and fall short of the glory of God. And even those of us who are saved will repeatedly fall. While we have been delivered from sin, we are not sinless yet. There might be a day in the resurrection when we are resurrected to a perfect life, free of sin and wholly devoted to the things of the Lord. But that day, well, it might be today, but it's not yet today. As Luther rightly said in the very first of his 95 theses, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, repent, will that the whole life of believers should be repentance. We must be people who continually repent. When we intercede for people, we are praying that God so mightily works in them that they might be given the gift, as the book of Acts calls it, of repentance. Our entire lives should be filled with repentance while we are still sinners. And today, even as others might be praying for us and others might be interceding for us, we must remember that within the mystery of the providence of God, this means we also have actions to take. We also have things to do. We need to rightly confess our sin before God and trust in the promise of mercy and grace. In that vein, let us turn then to speak of a prayer of repentance as we have been talking about what prayer is and we've been looking at individual types of prayer. We turn today to the prayer of repentance and we read that in Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of our God. The main inscription that we read at the top of that, if you have an ESV Bible, sometimes it's all in caps. That is part of Scripture. We don't put a number on it, but it's part of Scripture. And in this case, the inscripturation helps us quite a bit understand the context of this psalm. David had lived a very difficult life. He was overlooked by his father when Samuel came and asked him for his sons. But then once he was anointed king, David showed himself very inept or very, very adept better than inept. He wasn't inept, but he was adept at going out and doing the things that God had called him to. So he took down Goliath. He slayed thousands of Philistines. He was a mighty warrior. But this piqued the interest of Saul, who thought David was going after his kingdom. And so Saul persecuted him. And for 15 years, David ran and ran and ran from Saul. During that time, David continually trusted in the Lord. He continually had to trust in the Lord. There was the only salvation that he was going to find. But then Saul dies. David is anointed as king and positioned as king over Israel. And once he begins to have military victories, we see that his prosperity ends up biting him. In 2 Samuel 11, David commits an awful atrocity. Even after God had promised him an ongoing and forever and eternal kingdom, David does this. In first, or excuse me, in 2 Samuel 11, in the springs when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. The kings are supposed to go out to war. And he sent his people out to war. And they did what people who go out to war are supposed to do. But David stayed. And when he stayed, he looked on his roof and he saw a beautiful woman. And he brought her to him a woman who belonged to another man. And when she became pregnant, he tried to get her husband, Uriah, back from the field that he might go in to his wife, that he might cover up his sin. But Uriah proves himself to be incredibly noble. Listen to what Uriah says in verse 11. Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in an open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Uriah is righteous and he is noble before David. He will not do this thing to cover up David's sin. He doesn't know about David's sin. So David turns to plan B. Plan B 
is putting Uriah in the front of the line and then withdrawing the army in a position where Uriah is going to die. David sentences him to death. Verse 26 and 27 of that same chapter. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband, or, yes, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He kills her husband when he finds out that she is pregnant and cannot cover it up. And it's almost a year later when Nathan comes to him. The boy has already been born. As verse 27 says, she became his wife and bore him a son. At my reckoning, that's at least nine months. David is confronted by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for this traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die because he has done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. And Nathan replied to David, You are that man. David is confronted with Nathan and he realizes the depth of his sin. And Psalm 51 is the response of that. We can learn much from this psalm about what a prayer of repentance sounds like. And first, the prayer of repentance is a confession to God. In the first six verses, we have a confession to God and David rightly recognizes what he is asking for from God. He asks for mercy. He asks for help from God. God, grace, mercy, he says. He asks him to blot out his transgressions. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. To erase them, to, to make them non-existent. It, it reminds me of what Stalin used to do. Stalin butchered millions of people, but those people who were like official in his cabinets and, and were official ministers to him, when he wiped them out, he would go one step further. He wouldn't just wipe them out and snuff out their lives. He would try to snuff them out of history. He would go back and he would change photographs that they were in. And before you could do this on Adobe, he would Photoshop them out as though they never existed. This is the exact same thing that David is asking God to do only to his sins. Make them never have happened. Blot them out. Erase them from all eternity. But notice how he pleads for it. We talked about this last week. David doesn't come to God and say, God, you know, you made this great promise to me in 2 Samuel 7. He wouldn't have called it 2 Samuel 7, but remember that night you made that great promise to me? So, to be good to that promise, you know, I just want another chance. Just give me one more, one more chance. Or, you, you know, for 15 years, I was really good to you. I was really faithful. So maybe, maybe you could just let this one slide. He doesn't say, I'm generally speaking a good guy, and I think that my good outweighs my bad. 
I've saved more Israelite lives than, than I've killed. He doesn't do that. Listen to how he pleads. He pleads with God to have mercy according to God's abundant love, his steadfast love and abundant mercy. He doesn't plead with him based on who he is, but he pleads with God to have mercy on him, a sinner, based on who God is. That is right confession. David talks about his sin like they're leprosy, a disease that that eats at nerves and eats at at skin and eventually wears the body away. It's common throughout all of Scripture. Jesus healed many lepers. And that's often what it took. It's a bacterial infection. But without a miracle, they didn't have the ability to cure that kind of thing. Like that miracle, David needs God to intercede in his mercy to make him whole again, to make him new again. Listen, this is not something where David doesn't understand the depths of his sin either. Listen to what he says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. This isn't one of those sort of public apologies where people stand up before people and say, I am horribly sorry if my comments in any way have offended any people, right? Like, I don't really feel bad about making the comments, but if somebody took offense to them, I am sorry that you took offense to them. Like, that's not what David is doing here. He's not, he's not agreeing only in his mind with what God says. Nathan comes to him and says, it's a sin. And David says, well, I guess I did a bad, and I will agree that with what the Lord said. If that's what he says, that's what he says. Fine, I'm sorry. David says, no, it, it's before me. I can't get it out of my mind. It's burned in there. I have offended the Lord. You get the sense as you read through this that the sin is not just offensive to God. David doesn't just recognize that his sin is offensive to God. He actually finds his own sin offensive to himself. Those horrible sort of public apologies where people ask that those who are offended forgive them sound like Proverbs 26, 18 through 19, like a madman who flows flaming darts and deadly arrows. So is the person who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. This is humor in our day. This is comedy in our day. Just say whatever you want to say, and then afterwards just say, yo, man, I'm sorry. I was just I was joking about that. Don't take that seriously. That's abhorrent to God. You cannot apologize to God like that. You cannot come back to God without a fullness of knowledge of your sin. Not just agreeing with God, but actually finding it horrible in and of itself. This kind of action reminds me, actually, when people are sort of only apologetic for what has happened, but not actually offended by what they have done, of people that I knew who said and did incredibly stupid things when they were drunk. They, they get blasted, they go out, and they say just the most ridiculous things, and they act in the most ridiculous way. And they come back and they say, listen, whew, I know I shouldn't have acted that way, and I know I shouldn't have said those things, but you've got to remember, man, I was drunk. I didn't know what I was doing. Listen, that, that actually isn't the case. You see, what they make it seem like is by being drunk, they're acting like somebody else. That's not how being drunk works. You actually act like yourself when you're drunk. The difference is all those social inhibitors that are in your life, your mama looks at you and says, if you don't have something nice to say, you shouldn't say it. 
If, if you want to do something evil, think through the consequences. All those social niceties get broken down with alcohol. Alcohol acts on the processing centers and the consciousness centers of the brain, and it depresses your inhibitory centers, meaning you're less inhibited, meaning when you're drunk, you act like you are. You don't act out of character. You actually act in character. Listen, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 18 through 19, that we are to be drunk, not on wine, but in the spirit. So let me tell you something. That actually, in context, means that you are to engage in pub-like singing before God and with other Christians. But let's apply that in a slightly different way. Get drunk in the spirit and let the inhibitors come down on you and see your sin for what it is. Don't hold back when you confess your sin to God. Don't pretend like you can be nice before God, like you can dress up your sin. You can do all the dressing up you want to, and God sees right through it. You might as well confess what is rightly there. Confess what is true. Confess what your heart has thought and your brain has thunk. Confess rightly before God. David is incredibly honest with God. He knows the depth of his sin and the atrocity that he has committed. And what's more, he says that it is only before God that he has sinned. Now, there are plenty of people who are injured by this, much more than just Uriah and Bathsheba. He put Job, or excuse me, he, he, he put the entire nation really at risk, and specifically his army. He pushed his army forward to what he even thought was a bad spot, only to pull them back so that Uriah could die. There were more men who might have given their lives so that David could have committed this sin. A whole bunch of people were penalized for what David did. And yet David has the audacity to stand here and say, only against you have I sinned. What does he mean by this? There are several things that it could mean, but I think it's most likely that David simply indicates that God is the only person he really needs to contend with. Is it nice to get the forgiveness of Bathsheba? I'm sure that it is, especially now that she is his wife. Is it important that he try to secure fellowship back with the people that he has hurt? Indeed, it would be. But listen, friend, what do you gain by all of that? If you live a life of purity before the world and everyone you've wronged you gain forgiveness from and and you die and the eulogies are the greatest eulogies that anyone has ever proclaimed and thousands line up at your funeral. If the world thinks everything good about you and you are still sinful in the sight of God, you have gained nothing. If the world thinks that you are nothing but a scoundrel and they hate you, And you are seen off this mortal coil only by the grave diggers who are happy to throw dirt on your casket. But you have been forgiven by God. What have you lost? David says, the only person I really need to contend with in all of this is God. That is why he says it's only before God. He turns around and says that God will be justified in every judgment that he gives. He's justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. You can't hold God up. If God were to punish David, David knows that he deserves it. He's not going to say, God, that's not fair. He knows his sin is ever before him. He says, if you judge me and you condemn me, I'm rightly to be condemned. But if you forgive me based on your mercy and based on your love, then you are right to forgive me. You always do what is right. This is the same notion that Paul includes this very verse in Romans 3. Friends, entrust yourselves to God this way. There is an incredible openness 
to trusting in the forgiveness and the mercy of God here. David opens up himself and he says how sinful he is before God. He acknowledges that he deserves all of the punishment that God could give. And the only thing that he can do is lay down his life knowing that the hammer might fall on him, trusting himself to the mercy of God. That is confession. That is the only good confession that you can make of your sin. He goes on to talk about how God delights in truth in the inward being. Again, it's about what David knows of himself and what he relinquishes to God. He is sinful through and through. When he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It doesn't mean that she sinned. She was outside of marriage or something when, when the father and the wife came together. That's not what he means. But he means he is sinful. From the moment of conception, David is a sinner. He recognizes that there's nothing in him There's nothing of value before God. He was always, from the moment he was conceived, ready to be dead because of God's judgment upon him. So it's only by mercy that God can forgive him. There is confession before God, but then secondly, there is renewal by God. How do you know if your sins are truly ugly to you? If if you really despise it, if you really abhor it, You don't just ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness is a cheap man's game. That's not repentance. Asking for God simply to overlook your sin is not enough. And David proves it. He goes on to ask for God to actually make him new, fully regenerated again. He does not want God just to forgive it because he hates his sin. If God just forgives his sin, he knows that in his heart he's just going to sin again. He talked about being born in sin. He will always continue to be in sin. And so it's not enough for somebody who hates sin, who abhors it, who is offended by the very presence of sin, simply to ask for it to be forgiven, but to go one step further and ask God to remake them and make them whole again. So he prays for cleansing from his sin, both on the exterior, there in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter with snow, both on the outside and on the inside. David says, let me hear joy and gladness. This was almost, by the way, a full year again after he had committed this sin. The text gives us absolutely, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, gives us absolutely no indication that David felt at all sorry or contrite about his sin until God sent Nathan to him. No indication at all. He murdered a man and committed adultery and was fine with it for a year. When Nathan shows up, though, he realizes, he realizes. And God, by sending Nathan, does what David calls crushing his bones. He has broken him on the inside. He has presented David with disaster. He has crushed him. And so he says, I want to have joy and gladness. Remake my bones. I am, I am broken on the inside. There is nothing good within me, so make me new again. That is my joy and gladness, not just to have my sins forgiven, but for the very being of who I am to be remade and renewed. To be left unchanged by God, even if forgiven, would not let David be fixed and wouldn't help anything. 
So again, he repents. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He cries out for God to remake his heart. Friend, you know how, how evil and wicked your heart is? And yeah, there, there's plenty of ways that you can cover that up out in the world. There's plenty of ways that you can dress it up, and there's plenty of ways that you can present yourself as a nice, humble, kind human being out in the world. But do you honestly know how wicked your heart is? Some in here, hearing what David has done, think, I have also committed horrible acts. And friend, I'm telling you, there is forgiveness here for you, as David is forgiven, so you can be forgiven. Others look at this and they think, I could do something like that. And there is here a warning for you not to do something like that, but also the provision of forgiveness for you. But others in here are no doubt saying to themselves, my sin ain't that bad. I don't commit adultery and I certainly don't murder people. So maybe David was sick and ill through and through, but I I don't think that this is me. My friend, that's not what the word of God says to you. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure? I am cleansed from my sin. And in case you miss that, that's not an actual question. That's rhetorical. No one can say that. Proverbs 21, 2. All a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs hearts. You can be deceived by your heart. You can think that you're okay, but God has revealed that that is not true. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, this famous verse, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. More deceitful than anything else. Your heart is just as deceitful as a snake in the garden. It will deceive you, friend into thinking that you are all right. You are not all right. God is spoken through his word. You are not all right. I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. God has not promised to let David go, but he has promised this to us. He has promised to us the provision of a new heart that will long after God, the promise of a new heart with the law written upon it. In both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we have these great promises. I will give them a new covenant, and I will write my law on their heart. I will give them new hearts. I will remove their heart of stone, which will never bend toward me, and I will give them a heart of flesh. And Christ, through his death and resurrection on the cross, has given us the ability, by his new creation and being raised, the chance to become made new again. What David prays for here is not just an abstract reality, or not just metaphor, or not just something that happens out there, but it is something that can and does happen every single day. Christ can make you new. Christ has cleansed us from our sin, and what's more, Because of his work on the cross, he promises to make us a new creation. And that leads us to third thing, praise of God. Prayer of repentance includes within it praise of God. David says, I will turn and I will praise God in two distinct ways. First, before men. He says, I will tell sinners of God's ways. That is, he's going to instruct him as to what God is like. Friend, do you know what God's ways are? Do you know actually how he carries out his ways? And I want to tell you, this is distinct from being able to spout off things about who God is. Those are not the same. 
So you can use a ton of adjectives to describe who God is, but that doesn't tell us how his ways are. So for instance, you can talk about whether he's filled with mercy. You can answer those questions. Is he filled with mercy? Is he joyful? Is he wrathful? Is he loving? Is he kind? Is he holy? Is he compassionate? Is he angry? Is he jealous? Is he powerful? Yes, he is all of those things. But that is not declaring to sinners the way in which he is all those things. Because the way in which he is all those things is all the difference in the world. Knowing his ways is not just knowing things about him. It's knowing how God does these things. Because David has been forgiven. Because David knows what God is like in his inmost being. Because David has experienced that. He can teach sinners his ways. He can say, his wrath was upon me, but out of his great mercy, he has cleansed me. It's not enough to say, God is wrathful against you, but man, if you do enough good stuff, he might forgive you. That's basically what the vast majority of Islam comes down to. God is merciful to people, but it's kind of a crapshoot. You just do the best you can and you hope you get away with it. That's not the way it is with the God of Scripture. David says there is a way about him. There is a way to attain his mercy. There is a way to attain his forgiveness. And it's all the more specific for us. We know better what the ways of God are because we see them in Christ. We know how God is kind and compassionate and loving. We know how he's joyful, powerful, and all-knowing. We know how he is wrathful, holy, jealous, and powerful. We know these things and we see them on the cross. That is how we know. So is God filled with mercy? Yes, friend, because he doesn't crush you now. Is God joyful? Yes, yes. Even over your sin because it's the joy that pushed Christ forward on the cross for the joy set before him. Is he wrathful? Yes. But the sun extinguishes the wrath on the cruelty of the cross. Is he love? Yes, because God sent his son. Is he holy? Yes, because he cannot stand sin, so he doesn't just forgive it, but he allows you to be redeemed through the blood of Christ. Is he powerful? Yes, he conquered death by raising Christ from the dead. We don't just know the things of God, but because God has redeemed us, we know the ways of the things of God. We praise God in our redemption by talking to men and women about the ways of his salvation. Sinners will hear and they will come in. And secondly, he talks about the general praise of God. Interesting, David's tongue will sing of God's righteousness. That's not the word that we would use probably if we were penning this. We might speak of God's grace or his mercy or of his love or of his kindness. But instead, David says, I, I will speak of his righteousness. His righteousness that God does what is right, what is good. You see, what David knows here is that God has made many great promises. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. We talked about that last week in Exodus, when Moses pleads for the people on the basis that God has said, I will give to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the promised land. I will make them a nation of blessing for all of the world. David here is also relying on the promise, not only to the nation of Israel, but to he himself, that God will be with him. And so he talks about in his righteousness, he will praise his righteousness, that God is good to his word. God will be good to forgive David. But we are reminded that 
He is faithful to his promises in more than that. God does not simply overlook David's sin. He doesn't just brush it aside and say, I'm not going to penalize this sin at all. What he says is, I'm not going to penalize you, David, for this sin. But God is righteous because he is holy and he is forgiving. And those two things can only meet on the cross of Jesus Christ. So he punishes the sin of David on Jesus Christ, his greater son. And he forgives David on the basis of what Jesus has done. And friend, that is no different for you. Let me tell you the ways of our Lord. You are sinful before him, but you can be forgiven before him if you trust and know that Jesus Christ has paid the sacrifice for all of your sin. And that is not just for people in here who do not believe, although it is especially for you, but it is also for the redeemed. Because we need to hang on that with every breath we take in every day of our lives. There's not a day that goes by that we do not sin before God. And we have to rely on the fact that God will forgive us. God will remake us. God will be good to his word in Jesus Christ. We have nothing outside of that. Let that fill your tongue with joy. Let that empower your evangelism. Go and tell men and women about this great gift that you have been given. Stand up and sing for the glory of God and let your tongue flow with his righteousness. Tell people, tell God how good he is and how kind he is and how merciful he is that he has not spent his wrath upon you, but it has been extinguished by the Son, his only Son, the one whom he loved. What great love has he given to us. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Let that be true of us. And lastly, Hope in God. Let us hope in God. David's last word in the psalm actually concerned his hope for the future of the kingdom. And we can understand why. Because David wasn't just a random bloke that was hanging around in Jerusalem at the time. He was the king. He was the chosen king. He was the anointed king. He was the king who had received all of the promises. And with the fall of David falls all of the promises of God. With the fall of David falls Jerusalem. With the fall of David falls Israel. David knew well that it was God who would have to do good to Jerusalem. Listen to verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. He turns to people and he says before that, listen, God doesn't need a sacrifice from you. You don't get to just offer him bulls and goats and think that that's going to make everything okay. He says he does want a sacrifice, but the sacrifice he wants is a contrite heart. He wants you to know your sin and to cry out for him. There is a season and a time for sacrifices, but those sacrifices are post God's forgiveness. They are in response to the forgiveness that God has already given. So go to God Confess your sin and know that he will give it back. That is the sacrifice we have. But even in that, David knows that because God has forgiven him, he is the one who builds up the walls of Jerusalem. He is the one who keeps his people safe. David, David brought the nation to the brink of destruction by his own sin. And he knows that it is only in God's forgiveness. God is the one who will build up the walls of Jerusalem. David, David fought many wars. David won many wars. He expanded the kingdom of Judah and of Israel. He built the walls of Jerusalem. He made Jerusalem a great city. It's called David's city for a reason. But even in all that, he knows that he is not the one who truly builds it. If not for forgiveness, there would be no city of Jerusalem. So God needs to build those walls. God is the one who needs to secure the city. 
David is worried about losing the spirit, having the kingdom taken away. The question is, how is this going to be made secure? If David fell, who else has a chance? Read through scripture. Every king after David, every one of them is compared to whom? Either the wickedness of their fathers or the goodness of David. If David fell, what chance do the rest of the kings have? How will God actually secure his people within the walls? How will he make sure the kingdom will stand forever? Even David, who did well, left his kingdom to Solomon, who botched it toward the end of his life and let for the kingdom to be split in half. How is God going to secure that kingdom? He does it through none other than Jesus Christ, who is not just a king, but he is the best king. And that king will never die. Being raised to life again, he doesn't have to worry about the son that he's going to leave it to because he will always live. And friend, he will never let you down. You can be secure in him. God has built the walls up in Christ and you are secure in them. And by his forgiveness and by his grace, you can now offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God. Now is the time of sacrifice. Not before you are forgiven, but after you are forgiven. Paul writes to Roman, the Romans in verse, chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That is a call to every Christian. You have security. Now offer yourself. What can the world take from you that God will not give you back? Your life? He has promised you resurrection. Live as a sacrifice for God. What David almost lost, Jesus Christ secures for us. There is hope in God. We are to be like David in this, and certainly David was not imperfect. David was not perfect. David was sinful in so many ways. There's an interesting passage in this verse, and that is verse 11, which we kind of skipped over, but I did so for a reason. He says, Cast not me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why does he ask for that? David watched the reign of Saul crumble around him. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul was to wait For Samuel to arrive, he refused to wait for Samuel to arrive, and he offered up instead a sacrifice that was wrong. Samuel shows up, and in verse 13, Samuel says to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That is amazing. If, if Saul had simply been patient, just, just patient, in this instance, if he would have just waited on the Lord, his kingdom would have been established forever. But in his impatience, it is not. He says in verse 14, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That man is David. Later on in chapter 16, when Saul, excuse me, in chapter 15, Saul is to kill all of the Amalekites, but he doesn't do it. He leaves some of the, the livestock, and he leaves the king alive. And when Samuel shows up to convict him of his sin, he doesn't do what David does. Instead, he hardens himself, and he says, No, 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 I did what you asked me to do. I, I've, I've kept the word of the Lord. I, I won victory. 
Samuel says, no, you haven't. The kingdom is now gone from you. Later on in 1 Samuel 16, 14, the spirit is withdrawn from Saul. David looks at all of that and he says, I don't want that to happen to me. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Any, any brief indication of the lives of Saul and the lives of David would indicate that it doesn't have to do with perfection. By any reckoning, by any reckoning, the sin of David was as grievous, if not more grievous, than the sin of Saul. What is the difference? What it means to have a heart after God's own heart is not that you are perfect, but that when you sin, you repent. You repent. You acknowledge your sin. You acknowledge its horribleness before God. You entrust yourself to him. You ask for God to make you whole and clean and new again. You praise God for the work that he has done in doing that because he alone deserves praise and glory for it because you didn't do anything for it. And you long for the day when the city will be secure, when you will no longer live in a place where there is sin and there is worthlessness, where there is death and there is destruction, but you long for a day when Christ will reign over all things. That is what it means to be a man after God's own heart, to be a woman after God's own heart. Friend, you are not called here to be sinless. God hasn't called you to be that. But he has called you to live a life of repentance. Repent and believe in the gospel. And you will be saved. Let us pray. Father, you are good to us. We do not deserve your mercy. And so we do not claim that you ought to forgive us based on who we are, based on any sacrifices that we might get, as though we can earn your favor. We plead only the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one who has died for us. His death and his resurrection is our only hope, our only chance at forgiveness. We plead for you by your abundant love in Christ and by your mercy in Christ that you save us. We are sinful. And what's more, Father, that we have put on our lips your praises, that we can speak of your ways to people who do not know you, that your elect from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language might come to know you. Father, hear our prayer. May they be quick on our lips when we sin against you. Let us not be hard-hearted. Let us not have hearts of stone, but Father, give us hearts of flesh. Make us new again, not simply to be perfect before you, but to be contrite to be filled with repentance so that you might be vindicated when you judge and proved righteous in your words to be the just one and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. We ask for your blessings on us. In Jesus' name, amen.